the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you think about building a structure, going to put up a house, apartment complex, what do you need? Well, you need some important elements. First, you need the earth below it capable of supporting the weight of the building. So you don't want to have it on shifting sand. It's probably not good to have it on the edge of a cliff, right? Then you need to have upon that earth footings or a foundation that is capable of supporting the weight of the structure of the building, upon which then on that foundation goes the frame. Inside the frame goes things like plumbing and electrical, water, sewer, the like. On top of the frame go the walls to provide warmth and coolness, a roof over top to provide protection for the elements. Then in the interior, you want things like carpeting, heating, air conditioning to make the home comfortable. And then things like a kitchen to prepare meals, a bath, sleeping quarters, living quarters to make it habitable. But if you think about it, in all that entire process of going from no structure to a completed structure capable of supporting habitability or life, it all starts with one thing, a plan. Blueprints. My guest Tonight, I think, would suggest that as we look at the amazing structure that we call home, called planet Earth, inside our galaxy, traveling about here in this amazing Milky Way, that in order for us to arrive at a place of habitability on planet Earth, there had to be a plan. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Joining us today is the founder and president of Reasons to Believe best-selling author who mentioned quite a number of number one bestsellers to his name. We're pleased to have join us today, Dr. Hugh Ross. And Dr. Ross, always a delight and an education to have you with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You know, we think about habitability, and, and uh, I, I think the example is you cite inside the pages of Improbable Planet that the, the correlation between the capacity of, of creating a structure that allows us to put up a building and finally arrive at a place where we can have it and enjoy it, provide it uh, its serviceable use to us, uh, is very much uh, equal to equating life's sustainability features of Earth, aren't they? Well, they are, and what the book documents is the amount of design and fine-tuning you need, not just for life, but for plants and animals, and not just for plants and animals, but for human beings, and especially for human beings, where billions of us can live on the planet at one time and develop a technology where we can hear and respond to the redemptive message, the real reason why the Creator created the universe. And what we see is that the level of design goes up exponentially with each step. And so it actually begins with a Bible study I did where I noted that every creation text links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption and how the Bible states that God actually uh, starts his works of redemption before he creates anything. That would imply that everything that God creates is for the purpose of redemption. 
and then launched a three-year study on my part through the scientific literature to put that to the test. And indeed, that's what came out, is that literally every component of the universe, of Earth, of Earth's life, and every event in the history of the universe, Earth and Earth's life, plays a critical role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings in a short window of time. And, of course, not only playing a critical role, but it, it gives um, every every step, every aspect, just as I suggested with the, what you would need to create a structure that would be habitable for us to enjoy, uh, for, for livability. Uh, the same thing is true of planet Earth, that this is not just all coming together by accident. You speak of um, some of the features of planet Earth, for example, that are Necessary. They're essential to human life. Things like uh, the geographical, the chemical, atmospheric, biological, astronomical features of this planet that make it not only unique, but as you suggest in the book, um, going from simply the ability to sustain complex life to even having a reason why it's capable of sustaining that life. Yeah, I'll give you one example. I mean, for billions of humans to live on the planet at one time, we have to be living in an ice age cycle where the planet cycles between 10% ice coverage and 23% ice coverage, where the period of the cycle is 100,000 years. And this is the only time in Earth's history where we've had such a cycle. Moreover, to have billions of people develop technology, we have to be living in the warm interglacial period, which is 10% ice coverage, that follows the most severe ice age in the entire ice age cycle. And you've probably heard of things like climate warming and climate stability. What I document in the book is that we're living in a unique time window in the entire history of the Earth. The past 9,000 years, we've seen extreme climate stability at the optimal temperature for human civilization. Why? Because seven cycles in the variation of Earth's orbit and a rotation axis all came together to open up this unique time window. We've been in 9,000 years. At most, we can sustain it for another 1,000. And so God is giving us this brief time window in which we can take the redemptive message to all the people groups of the world and have them respond. And from a biblical perspective, this universe is a pathway to a far better universe. Dr. Yoon Ross, our guest today, a look at his new book, Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. The new book, by the way, just published by Baker Books. And uh, yeah, you're thinking about gift giving perhaps already. Um, Thanksgiving's just a couple of weeks away. Before you know that, soon after, of course, it'll be Christmas time. And uh, a book like this can not only be great for any skeptic, but anyone who wants to understand sort of the deeper story from the scientific reasoning uh, behind not only how things came to be, how man came to be, but most importantly, some of the reasons why. We'll get to more of those reasons why as our conversation with Dr. Hugh Ross continues and our look at Improbable Planet. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Our conversation continues with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. His latest book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home. Dr. Ross, in some respects, is this book sort of the sequel to um, your previous book that, that opens up the subject matter of why the universe is the way it is? Yeah, to some degree it is. I mean, that book was basically targeting how God designed the universe to eliminate evil and suffering. This book goes on to talk about how God designed the earth and all of its life so we can understand and respond to uh, his purpose for creating 
namely to redeem us into a new creation, a new realm beyond this one. There are others out there, um, I think of the Carl Sagans of the world, that would suggest as we look at the layers of complexity that we're going to have you go into this evening, that all of this in relationship to Earth's capacity to support life is just simply an amazing coincidence. What of that notion? Well, often they're not looking at uh, the number of coincidences. Yeah, you could say maybe four or five of them are just coincidental, but when it adds up to hundreds and even thousands, that's what this book documents, thousands of different aspects of the history and the components have to be fine-tuned to make the possible the existence of billions of human beings on the Earth. A few, maybe. Thousands, no. It's, it's clear evidence that God is controlling things. In fact, they argue, and I said this in front of scientific audiences, if we actually look at science from a redemptive perspective, we have a more efficient tool for rapidly advancing scientific progress. I mean, if indeed everything that we see in creation is for the purpose of redemption, that should give us a tool for discovery. And the book basically documents the success of that approach to science. And, of course, what's critical about uh, this research that you've done is not only do you demonstrate that there are thousands of factors involved uh, that need to be in place, but also the the tight measurements, um, the the tight confines to which um, something can swing from being compatible and habitable to suddenly inhabitable. I mean, for example, uh, we have temperatures across Earth, some of the highest temperatures in, in the deserts that reached 115, 120 degrees. I suppose if we saw that ratchet up by 10 or 15 more degrees and saw that take place in more places across the planet, suddenly planet Earth goes from being habitable to inhabitable pretty quickly. And a lot of that has to do with just simple things like the the, the tilt of the Earth, doesn't it? Well, it does, and there's a chapter in the book, Chapter 7, where I talk about habitable zones. Because you've probably heard that a number of my fellow astronomers will say, well, there's 40 billion planets in, our, in the habitable zone or Milky Way galaxy alone. But all they're looking at is water habitability. Today we know of nine distinct habitable zones. So, for example, in addition to the water habitable zone, you got the ultraviolet habitable zone the astrophere habitable zone, uh, the atmospheric electric field habitable zone. Now, we do know of 3,600 planets outside of our solar system, but of all the planets we discovered, there's only one planet that resides in all nine habitable zones, and that's the one you and I are sitting on. And unless it resides simultaneously in all nine habitable zones, the planet is not habitable. So they're really being unfair then. It's almost as if they're picking and choosing when they suggest, uh, based on some of these calculations, that there could be up to 40 billion possible habitable planets uh, in the Milky Way galaxy. But it doesn't take into consideration all of these factors suggesting that the notion that Earth can have a life-supporting twin is probably unlikely? That's right. They're picking the most generous zone and ignoring the ones that are the most restrictive. I mean, water is the third most abundant molecule in the universe. The universe is really wet. So the fact that we find water in a lot of places is no big surprise, but there's eight other factors that need to be taken into account. Moreover, the structure of the planets. You know, we have eight planets in our solar system. It was actually born with ten. And unless those ten are all fine-tuned exactly the way they were or are, 
you cannot have advanced life on planet Earth. And of course, what's fascinating about this, as I suggested in the opening remarks, that as you make in the book, the comparison between uh, the building of a habitable planet to the building of a habitable building, that uh, in both cases it starts with having the essential construction materials at hand. And even the balance of that is very unique to planet Earth, is it not? It is. There's a chapter in the book on dirt where I basically encourage people, don't take dirt for granted. Our planet has got the only dirt that allows you to grow uh, food grains. I mean, you know, I don't know if you saw that movie about the Martian that showed Matt Damon growing potatoes on Mars. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Well, the soil of Mars has got 60 times as much sulfur as Earth does. You're not going to be able to grow anything on Mars unless you bring soil from planet Earth. Fascinating. And, of course, with that idea, not only is it essential that you have the right construction materials, but there's another factor here, uh, and that is anybody that's going to build a building, let's say it's for, uh, uh, you know, uh, living purposes, you want to make sure it's in the right neighborhood. Nobody's going to put up a beautiful uh, three- or four-bedroom home with a swimming pool and put it right in the middle of an industrial park that's surrounded by nothing but uh, light industry and large warehouses. And I guess the same thing is equally true, in a sense, in relationship to not just that we exist, but where Earth is situated in relationship to, uh, what should we call it, the rest of our our, our neighborhood here in the Milky Way galaxy? Well, in order for advanced flight to be possible, our solar system must be born in the most dangerous part of our Milky Way galaxy, relatively close to the center of the galaxy. That's so we can get enriched with sufficient heavy elements from exploding stars. But it's essential we get kicked out right, at, right after we get enriched. And we see about our sun is it got kicked out from the most dangerous place in our Milky Way galaxy and situated in the safest place in our Milky Way galaxy. And that happens to be the only place in our Milky Way galaxy where we astronomers can observe the entirety of the universe and directly witness the cosmic creation event. So God not only put us in the best possible place uh, for civilization, he also put us in the best possible place to make scientific discoveries. And there's also something that I learned fascinating inside the pages of your new book, Improbable Planet, and that is this notion that as much as suggesting that there is up to 40 billion possible habitable planets that discounts a lot of critical factors, then, too, isn't it true that this notion that uh, there are other galaxies that could support life? For example, you make an A-B comparison between the characteristics of the Milky Way galaxy versus the Andromeda galaxy. Tell us about what some of those critical distinctions are. Well, often we look at the Andromeda galaxy and call it a sister galaxy because of how much it looks like the Milky Way. But when you look at its spiral arm structure, it's warped and it's distorted. Why? Because it suffered a collision from a fairly big dwarf galaxy just a half billion years ago. And the warping and the distortion is such that it eliminates the possibility of advanced life in that galaxy. And there's actually 200 different features of our Milky Way galaxy that must be exquisitely fine-tuned for advanced light to be possible. You, know, you have to have a spiral arm structure. The spiral arms have to be extremely symmetrical, and they have to have the right space between the spiral arms. The galaxy's got to be the right mass. It needs to have a high ratio of dark matter uh, to ordinary matter in it, and it's got to be relatively free of spurs and feathers between the arms. And we have studied thousands of other spiral galaxies. Ours is the only one that meets the characteristics that advanced life needs. 
And if you take a look at those two differences, if, if the characteristics that you observe of the Andromeda galaxy were present in the Milky Way galaxy, that would then suggest that life could not be sustainable on planet Earth inside the Milky Way? You might build a bacteria that could exist for a few months, but you wouldn't have plants, animals, and you certainly wouldn't have human beings. It just becomes that uh, hostile, in other words, to the ability of sustaining life. Everywhere we look in the universe, we see hostility for advanced life except in our planet Earth. And, you know, after a while, you look at this, and as much as nobody looks at a fantastic building, you look at the Pyramid uh, Transamerica building in downtown San Francisco, you take a look at the Sears Tower in Chicago, look at the um, Empire State Building in New York City, and you've got to think to yourself, that took forethought, that took engineering ability, that took planning, that took science, that took not only uh, a sense of vision, but also a sense of the end game, a sense of what the purpose would be. And as we're learning today from Dr. Hugh Ross, there's more than just planning behind the presence of life on Earth, but in fact, purpose, too. We'll talk a bit about that as well and when we continue with our conversation. The new book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly published by Baker Books, available through the usual suspects. Get it online at Amazon.com. You can also order it directly through Reasons to Believe simply by going to Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. We'll come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're learning today, even when somebody like Carl Sagan suggests that millions of life planets must exist, um, suggesting that there is nothing unusual or extraordinary about planet Earth, Dr. Hugh Ross is proving the contrary to be true, that there are complexities about this planet that make life here possible that with uh, just a variety of changes here and there would suddenly make its sustainability impossible. Toward that end, you also talk in the book, as you sort of lead to this uh, logical conclusion, Dr. Ross, that if Earth is capable of sustaining physical life, as it's demonstrated down through its history, um, we've certainly have seen also then the ability of it to sustain physical life along with mind-possessing life. But you take it a step further. You suggest that not only can the planet sustain physical life and mind-possessing life, but also spiritual life. Tell me more about that. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the whole purpose for God creating is to bring about a redemptive relationship between him and the human species. And we're told in the Bible that he intends to bring a countless number into that relationship. And the Greeks could count up to a billion, so he's talking billions. So that implies that the Earth must be designed in such a way to support billions of people at one time. And that only began to happen 9,000 years ago. So only for the past 9,000 years has that been possible. And we also notice that uh, he salted the Earth uh, with all the resources we need to make possible the technology we need to take the good news of redemption to all the people groups of the world. Everything is targeting purpose. I would argue that the earth and its inhabitants, all of its life, all of its history, screams that there's purpose for humanity and actually targets us to exactly what that purpose is. 
And so I'm amazed at all the new scientific discoveries of the past two years. I mean, one thing we discovered is that uh, in order for plate tectonics to start and be sustained, you need life to be created at the same time and to be sustained throughout that time. Life requires plate tectonics, plate tectonics requires life, and all that plate tectonics and life is necessary to provide us with the resources so that billions of human beings can hear and respond to the redemptive message. Is this eventually going to force those that come at this purely from a scientific standpoint and wish to go no further, um, that as we look at the progression of well, the laws of physics and their impact on planet Earth, natural selection, its impact, ultimately coming to the slow realization that for there to be laws, for there to be natural selection, there must be a source for all of that? Well, I think so. I mean, I was at a conference once where atheist scientists were speaking and they all insisted that there was no God, but they also insisted that we human beings have purpose. We got value. Uh, we have some kind of eternal destiny. And it's like none of that makes sense if there is no God. But if God designed this universe uh, so that we did have purpose and ultimate destiny, then it all makes sense. But what that revealed to me is that we human beings, no matter how hard we try, cannot deny that within us we have purpose we have meaning, we have value. It's written upon our hearts. I mean, it tells us that in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I find that even committed atheists have a very difficult time denying that. Yes, yeah, some, um, some of the remarks made by even um, Richard Dawkins over the last year or two are beginning to suggest that there's a bit of thawing, <laughs> even of his position. Yes. Well, I mean, what I admire about Richard Dawkins, he says science can test religious ideas. I agree with him on that, and I'm eager to try to use science as a tool to test competing religious ideas. Part of the science also um, beginning to put some holes into Charles Darwin's theory, and I asked that question because Darwin, of course, always held that there was a presumption of development and transformation of development of life on the planet that was slow, it was smooth, it was gradual, it was contiguous, but you argue in the book that that just simply isn't so. Well, I do. In uh, Chapter 12, I talk about what's called the faint sun paradox, how the sun today is 20 to 25 percent brighter than it was when God first created life. But life can only tolerate about a 2 percent change in the solar brightness. And we notice is that uh, we see in these mass extinction and mass speciation events that life is wholesale removed from planet Earth and shortly thereafter replaced with completely different species of life. But we notice about those replacements, they're more efficient at pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. So as the sun gets progressively brighter and brighter, the greenhouse effect of Earth's atmosphere becomes progressively weaker and weaker, keeping the temperature on the surface of the Earth ideal for life. But my point is this, only a mind that knows the future physics of the sun and the Earth will know which light to remove and with new life to replace that removed life with. And it's actually stated that way in uh, Psalm uh, 104, that it's a property of all light to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. If he's not constantly removing life and replacing that life, then quickly the sun's luminosity makes it impossible for any life to be sustained for the rest of the history of the earth. So it's a classic example if we integrate across the scientific disciplines, that's where we see that the holes in the Darwinian paradigm 
are not just in one discipline, they're in all the disciplines. And, and fascinating, even as we make that comparison to something as simple as a seed falling to the earth and dying and then giving forth life, that even right. in the most simplicity um, of, of creation, it's there. Well, one thing I talk about in the book is that the grains that are crucial for feeding our planet, they only existed in the very recent history of Earth. It literally took billions of years of preparation of previous life forms to make possible the existence of rice and wheat and oats and millet. And without that, we couldn't feed our population. So if we string all of this together, Earth's providing essential construction materials situated in the right neighborhood, the uniqueness of our solar system, all of this is sort of builds layer upon layer, um, we begin to slowly draw the conclusion that all of this has to come together with a plan, and if a plan, there must be a architect, there must be a planner, and as you suggest at the conclusion of the book, ultimately that leads us back to the notion that God himself planned and prepared Earth as our home. He did, and he particularly targeted us human beings not just a God creating a home for life. He wanted a home where there'd be sentient beings that could come into a relationship with him. All of it exists for us human beings. Ultimately, what would you conclude is, is your intent in terms of the, the takeaway um, for readers that look at this book, either because they're trying to understand more from a scientific viewpoint or see the deeper correlation between uh, the creator and the creation. What's the big takeaway in, in, in the way you've approached writing this book? Well, the universe has to be exactly the size that it is. Every star, every planet, every comet, uh, every bacterium, every life form, every event in history, the universe and the Earth and Earth's light has to be exactly the way it is for us human beings uh, to exist and to develop the kind of civilization we need to discover God and come into relationship with Him. The takeaway I hope people will realize is that we human beings are incredibly valuable in the sight of the Creator and that He has a purpose uh, for us. He wants us to discover that purpose. So I end the book by basically challenging people where there's a purpose for humanity in general but God has designed a special purpose for every individual human being. The purpose he has for me is different from all the other 7.5 billion people on the earth. I need to find what that purpose is and fulfill it in the few decades that God has me here in this creation. And, of course, what's so wonderful about the conclusions that we can draw at the end of Improbable Planet is that this... Um, spinning sphere upon which we call home is far too complex, too detailed, and too involved to simply have happened by accident. And if created, then therefore a creator. If designed with purpose, then certainly there must be a designer and a plan in place. The book is called Improbable Planet, How Earth Became Humanity's Home, newly released by Baker Books. You'll find it available through Bay Area bookstores as well as directly through Reasons to Believe at reasons.org. That's reasons.org. The book again called Improbable Planet by our guest tonight, best-selling author Dr. Hugh Ross. Dr. Ross, as always, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And again, the book available through reasons.org. That's reasons.org. Improbable Planet by Dr. Hugh Ross. 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Hey, ask yourself the question, do you love your kids? Certainly. Like every parent says, I love my kids. They can be a little bit problematic sometimes. There are days when, you know, if we could turn back the clock, we might have thought <laughs> differently. But overall, sure, we love our kids. But how do we love our kids? And does it, in the end, make a difference? So there's so much to parenting these days. And unfortunately, it's the one really big, important job in life where a lot like marriage, you don't get a handbook. There's no manual. There's no advanced pre-qualifications. Uh, you just kind of dive in and you go. And if you came, fortunately, from a good, strong family and uh, your parents did a pretty good job raising you, you can kind of model your parenting skills after them. And if you didn't, well, you think about what mom and dad did and then do the opposite, right? But in the end, some of the keys uh, to parenting can come down to not just that we love our children, but how we love our kids. That, coincidentally, is the title of a new book released by our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Mylan and Kay Yurkovich. And uh, welcome both of you to the program. Hi, Craig. How are you? I'm well, Hi. thanks. Great to be with you. I, I think of the the five languages of love, and now you have brought out the five love styles. And let, let's spend a moment when we talk about this. I think, you know, at, at basic level, people think, well, of course I love my kids. And, and sometimes I've learned from people like James Dobson, I have to employ tough love. But what are these five different styles of loving? Well, essentially... Um, you end up seeing different people like the avoider parent who, male or female, is the emotionally detached parent. Uh, you have the pleaser who's the rescuing parent who wants everybody to be happy. You have what we call the vacillator parent who's dedicated but highly preoccupied and sometimes present, sometimes not, also a person who gets angry. A controller, the autocratic parent, and then the victim, the childlike parent. And all those styles, of course, there are good aspects, there are negative aspects, there are benefits, there are, I, mean, I, I, I suppose it's like anything, you know, the, the, the negatives weigh in with the positives. As we look at these different styles of parenting, give me some insight in terms of where do they come from? Is this something that, that's learned behavior? Do we model it after the way our parents loved us? What? Yes, we, we really do get our first lessons about love from our own families growing up but we don't often stop to really ask ourselves what exactly were those lessons and what was good about them and what what would I like to change about them and you know we were married 15 years and parented for 15 years without ever really looking back to answer or ask that question so we we come out of our homes with an an imprint of intimacy or beliefs about relational styles and each one of these that Mylan just mentioned um, have some specific issues that often we aren't aware of. Well, let's talk about some of the things that we're not aware of. Okay, well, for example, I was the avoider parent, and so I came from a home where um, my parents did a great job raising responsible, self-sufficient kids, that we performed well. Um, but where they, where they were weak, and I don't think they realized this, was they were weak in emotional connection. We were never asked about feelings as a kid and with my sisters. We were never comforted when we were emotionally distressed. We were sort of left to figure that out on our own. So I adopted those rules and parented my own kids in the same way. And I think most avoider parents, male or female, 
are, are going to be task-oriented and they're going to applaud mastery and independence. And sometimes I expected my kids to be further along than they were really developmentally ready to be. And, you know, when, when my kids were frustrated or, um, you know, upset, I really didn't have the skills to draw out their emotions or ask them what they were feeling because I didn't really know what I was feeling. Now, toward that end, I, I'm, I'm curious, Mylon, how did your parenting style uh, work in harmony or, or against? Was there a sense of balance between the two of you? Well, I like your optimistic start. <laughs> did they work in harmony? Well, actually, they didn't because as a pleaser parent, I wanted everybody to be happy. And I was a fear-based parent, which is what uh, pleasers are. And, you know, what happens is is that Pleaser parents often, even though they're fun and they create warm, nurturing environments, sometimes their highest value is safety, protection, and keeping everybody happy, and they, protect, they want to protect kids. And they can overly protect kids and ultimately uh, discourage exploration and so on and so forth. Does so, this also tend to be somebody that perhaps avoids conflict, wants to keep, you know, let's not ruffle the feathers, let's keep absolutely. everybody happy? Absolutely. So there can be some, so, some, some might regard this then, Mylon, as, as a, a lack of discipline at some levels. Well, that's perhaps true. Uh, pleaser parents are not as respected as other parents, um, often because they're pushovers, and they can, the kids can get by with stuff, and the parent doesn't want to create friction that causes the child to become angry at them because they're fear-based, and they like to have everybody in a, a happy place. And so they really can't offer... Um, what you said earlier in your introduction, uh, like James Dobson said, they have a hard time with this tough love concept, and people do need a good balance of tough and tender, or as it says in John, truth and grace. You know, there's so much work that needs to be done here because it, it occurs to me as we as we in life go about finding that perfect life partner, you know, we, we typically think about compatibility in terms of, you know, where do you like to vacation and, you know, how do you like to decorate the house and where do you want to live and how many kids would you like to, to have? We, we think about manners in which husband and wife will mesh together relationally, but I would suspect there are few that would sit down in advance of making a decision to get married and say, so tell me about your parenting style, you know? Well, that's true. And then if you get two parenting styles that are identical or are are polar opposites, and as you've suggested by the title of the book, in, in five different styles of parenting, uh, it would almost seem as if if somebody uniquely, and I would suspect there might be a combination where some people are, have, you know, high tendencies toward one and a lower tendency toward another so that there's a number represented. But what happens, for example, Kay, when there's only two represented, the other three are missing? Does that really create havoc? Well, you know, these styles are a little different from the five love languages that you mentioned earlier because that's just a you know positive way that your spouse would like to sh- be shown love. These are more injuries. In other words, when each one of these styles represents some sort of inability to create emotional connection and to really create that balance Mylon was talking about between love and nurturing and discipline and boundaries. And so as the avoider, I was overly rigid and not able to emotionally connect and Mylon was too free-spirited and you know unable to set those boundaries but um, you know the vacillator parent is the third one and 
you know, their um, ideal is to have a family that is just stands out and is superior. And what the vacillator doesn't really realize is that they are very, very sensitive to rejection, and oftentimes they're very preoccupied with how all their relationships are going, whether that's their marriage or their friendships. And it, it takes a lot of headspace for them. And so many times when they're present with their child, they're really not all there. And so what the child feels with the vacillator is, I'm here, you're present with me, and then all of a sudden you go away, and I, even though you're present in the room, I, you're not here. Mm. And so the child feels a sense of... Um, present, but, but the parent exactly, is disengaged. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So all these... Uh, uh, Craig, are in contrast to a secure attachment style you mentioned in your intro that some of us came from really good homes where we were known, seen, valued, and cared for. And we would describe that person as a person who had a secure parenting experience as a child. And they, they grow up and they naturally know how to create security in relationships. These others are what we call the insecure attachment styles. And so many books are about how to fix the kid. This is a book about how to work on us as parents, how one small change in you can make a big change in your kids. And that's so key because, again, given to the notion, as Kay mentioned, that we typically will model after the parenting style of our parents, good or bad, uh, if that's all we have to go upon, uh, my goodness, that, that can be very problematic, especially, as you suggest, if the vast majority of us did not come from homes where mom and dad were perfect, then what do you do? And oftentimes, as you point out, we look at it as trying to fix things with the kids when oftentimes what's going on with the kids is a direct result from the parenting style. A look at how we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting, and how one small change in you can result in one big change in your kids. Mylon and Kay, you're with us tonight. We'll be back with more insights as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How we love our kids, the five love styles of parenting. And, and Richard reminds me, aren't you going to let listeners know, by the way, that Mylon is one of the co-hosts on New Life Live? And I thought, yeah, you know, that's that that's that over 40 thing again that I, I keep reading about. <laughs> Indeed, of course, the program with our good friend Steve Otterburn, weekday afternoons at 1 p.m. right here on KFAX. And and, and a, a million apologies, uh, Mylon, if I may. <laughs> oh, no, not necessary at all. Hey, as we're talking all. about these styles here. I, I like what you said just prior to the break, the notion that so often we approach this from the standpoint of trying to fix our kids, when if at first we would focus on, well, dare I dare say it, fix our parenting styles, sure. there might be the real key. Give us some insights from both of your perspectives, if you would, uh, as we kind of sit down and look at the list. We have to analyze, of course, uh, mom's parenting style, dad's parenting style, and then where do we go from there? Well, I think when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in um, uh, the Gospels, uh, uh, he said to them, you know, the pupil cannot rise above the teacher, but when fully trained will be just like the teacher. Mm. And he was saying to that to them uh, after he called them blind guides. And he said, you know, the people of Israel can't see me because you can't see me. And he said, they're not going to get any higher or more elevated in their capacities than you. And I think it's a good passage to help us understand that how we're trained is about as far as we're going to go until we choose to get further training. So, again, as a pleaser, I was a fear-based parent. The vacillators are very shame-based parents, and they also fluctuate between being 
overly in, uh, often rescuing and intrusive with their child to distant and angry, and so they, they vacillate back and forth. And the avoiders tend to be very much about task and mastery. And this can also, Craig, create a, a triangulation in the marriage where uh, the rescuing parent is, is more empathetic and has more, shall we say, um, uh, empath, em, empathy for the child. And then the avoiders less em, you know, empathic, and then the parents are arguing about what should happen to the child without stopping and asking, are you balanced and am I balanced, <laughs> you know, in our assessments? And maybe, as you said earlier, we need to ask and balance each other out a little bit more. This really needs to be a team effort. In other words, this is not dad picking on mom or vice versa. Well, it sure happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, it does happen a lot. And I, I think an important question, we ask a great diagnostic question in our first book, which looks at these lifestyles in marriage. You know, do you have a memory of comfort from your own childhood where a parent saw that you were distressed and they noticed that you were emotionally upset about something and they sought you out and really listened to you and drew out your heart and, you know, offered comfort so you left that experience feeling relief. And surprisingly, about 80% of our audiences don't have one memory like that. So comfort is a big part of emotional connection, and avoiders don't know how to do it, and pleasers are afraid of negative feelings. They avoid them. You know, vacillators are so preoccupied that they often aren't able to give their kids comfort because they're trying to comfort themselves. And And, and their world is either good or bad. It's just all good or all bad. And then that lifestyle that we haven't even talked about yet, you know, the people that come from really difficult homes that end up being controllers or victims, um, you know, they they just don't have any memories. In fact, the thing, they didn't get comfort. They actually got, their parents were stress makers instead of stress reducers. Um, so this whole idea of learning to emotionally connect and, and comfort each other um, was really transforming for us in our marriage, and it really helped us um, learn how to emotionally connect to our kids as well. And a lot of this, Kay, does it come down to learning how to bring about a balance of the good things from all five love styles? Is that what the goal is here in the end? I think the goal is to really look at your love style as an injury. In other words, as an avoider, I didn't get emotional connection in my family, and I was very unable to do it with my own kids. When I realized that, I had to take responsibility for that lack of training in my own home. And I had to learn to know what my feelings were. I had to learn to be able to articulate them. And the more comfortable I got in expressing emotions and accepting comfort for myself, the more I was able to do it for my children. So each of these styles sort of is representative of an injury from your own family. And taking responsibility to really understand that and how it hampers your parenting and, and growing towards a more um, secure um, style where you really have the capacity to uh, connect and to relate um, on an emotional level and to listen well. Um, you know, so often we see our kids' behavior and we just react to the behavior without ever saying, why is this child behaving this way? What stresses them? We don't ask enough questions to even sometimes understand that. And, you know, this is such an important key because, Mylon, you touched on this earlier. I mean, certainly from an empowerment standpoint, and this is true in any relationship, the one that we have control over ultimately is ourselves. 
if we start working on ourselves, understanding our parenting style, seeing the benefits, uh, the disadvantages, and, and beginning to work on that, that certainly is the one key that we can control. But I suppose, too, there's also the dynamic here, as much as there is the parenting style, then there's just the kid's style, so to speak, the kid's personality. In the book, you talk about the free-spirited, the determined, the sensitive, the introverted, the premature. Then I guess there's sort of the meshing of your parenting style with the child's, uh, how would we say it, Mylon, parenting needs? Well, I think parenting needs is a very good term. I wished we would have used that in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, you're right. It's um, Every child's unique, and a lot of people, especially in evangelical Christianity, want to create cookie-cutter formulas for how to raise a kid. And some kids are what we call a highly sensitive child, and, and they they are perhaps sensitive to touch and light and sounds, and, and they're fussier and... And yet if they're put into the same plan as, as a child who's not that way, they, they really cave under the pressure, and their life is not a happy one. Uh, I think we can have the same standards but different approaches to each child. Needs to be a lot of flexibility then because your parenting style may not match their parenting needs, and every child within the family, three, four, five kids, whatever, may all indeed, as unique individuals, have different needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's so true. And, you know, I think anybody who's had more than one child realizes the, the truth of that, but in the same respect, we all do need to be really understood and loved and known, and, you know, we ask a question in our seminars, how many of you felt you had parents who deeply knew you, um, knew what made you tick, knew what your likes and dislikes were, um, knew what your struggles and stresses were, and again, there's a there's a just a minority of people who raise their hands, and so every child really needs to be deeply known and valued and loved. And um, to the degree that we receive that as kids, you know, then we know how to do it. But if we didn't have parents who deeply knew us, and we're we're going to be lacking those skills. So this is really a, a even book. awareness. An awareness. That's right. Um, I mean, I parented for 15 years with no awareness that I was really parenting as an avoider, and my last, our fourth child, um, got the best of us. And, mm -hmm. you know, you can see her ability to emotionally connect and be able to articulate feelings and um, listen well uh, is just at a higher level. And I would well. suspect, too, here in the end, it, you know, it takes time. It takes an investment because you're getting to not only know the parenting style of your spouse, but also the unique individual needs of your kids. And obviously that number in time increases exponentially based on the size of your family. Uh, but that said, I would imagine, Mylon, we shouldn't feel overwhelmed by this task. I think we need to feel like I can start any time to get better. Um, There's uh, a, a very prominent physician some years ago who said, you know, if we provide good enough parenting, um, it will be adequate. Uh, we're not trying to be the super parent, and we're not trying to be the worst one on the block either. We're trying to get better and improve. And this thing called sanctification that the Bible talks about, that we should be growing over the course of a lifetime, we ask many people in our audiences, how many of you ever felt as though your parents were growing over the course of your childhood and adolescence? And again, very few hands go up. You know, I never saw growth. So it's a gradual thing, isn't it? You know, the concept of growth in the Bible, it's like seasons and time and fruit and fruit bearing. It's, it's, a, it's a function of time and growth. 
The book again is entitled, How We Love Our Kids, The Five Love Styles of Parenting, One Small Change in You, One Big Change in Your Kids. The new book, by the way, published by Waterbrook, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Also more information on both the ministry of Mylan and Kay and information on the book on their website, howwelove.com. That's howwelove.com. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.